If you were near any kind of news source or social media feed this time four years ago, the Tam Luang Cave Rescue Mission may be familiar to you. On 23rd of June, 12 members of a junior league soccer team and their assistant coach traveled in a remote mountain range in northern Thailand to a cave system for a bit of afternoon exploration after a morning practice session. Unbeknownst to the boys, ages 11 to 16, as they pressed deeper into the tunnel system, torrential downpours began outside. A large storm at the beginning of the region's monsoon season began. In an amazingly short amount of time, the rising levels of groundwater throughout the complex cave system effectively blocked the group's, the group's exit route, effectively trapping them inside some 2.5 miles from the cave's entrance. What unfolded over the next 17 days was the stuff, quite literally, that movies are made of. Unsure if the boys and their coach were even alive, the Thai military and an international team of diving experts launched a 10-day search for signs of life. Outside the scene, perhaps you remember, an amazing scene emerged as an extraordinary rescue operation was staged involving multiple angles of approach, involving international groups of engineers, dive teams, medical professionals, military personnel, and volunteers. Maybe, like me, that summer, your mornings consisted of waking up and traveling to the nearest news outlet, looking online everywhere you could find updates about the operation, the boys' condition, grip the world. As a culture, we're somewhat enamored with stories of rescue. In fact, later this summer, the film 13 Lives will be released to the public and already before its debut is in the discussion this year for the award for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. We're enamored with stories of rescue. This morning, I'm not quite sure of the rules behind spoiler alerts for four-year-old international news headlines but I'll spoil a bit of the story for you because I find one particular part of the story in Thailand particularly striking. In a quick Google or YouTube search, readily available, no spoiler alert, readily available to you, you can find the actual footage of the moment when after nine days of failed attempts to press deeper into the cave where they thought this group was, a pair of British divers make a most startling discovery. Equipped with a camera system, in the footage you catch the beam of one of the diver's flashlights going across the side, the interior of the cave, as they surface in an air pocket where they think the boys are. As the light spreads across the craggy ledge, it rests on a steep hillside, and there sit in the flashlight's beam, all 12 boys and their coach, alive. Audio from the scene is a bit garbled, but in it, you hear the call of one diver to the boys. How many of you? And you hear the other diver exclaim in the background, they're all alive. One of the boys from the crag shouts to the group, 13. And in a very proper and British manner, one of the divers responds in accordance with our hearts, 13, brilliant. Indeed, we're captivated by rescue stories. And as we held our collective breath in that moment, we were met with the word brilliant, with the hopefulness of the situation at hand. 
Here were a people desperately in need of help, and the opportunity presented itself to bring them safely home. We're captivated by rescue stories, in part because we have been ourselves in need of or recipients of rescue. Our text today may effectively serve as the staging grounds or the logistics center of a massive rescue operation. This one's spiritual and unprecedented. Throughout the passages in recent weeks, we've seen the Messiah, Jesus, come and he's fulfilling his earthly ministry. What we largely see in the preceding passages here before we get to the end of chapter 9 is Jesus himself working, moving about, performing miracles, teaching others. Though Jesus has called his disciples at this point, we see them play but a small, rather insignificant supporting role in this unfolding drama. If you have a Bible today, we'll be in the end of Matthew chapter 9, if you'll turn with me there. Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there should be one available to you underneath the sea in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. There's a table in the back that you may stop by on your way out and pick that up. We'll be in Matthew chapter 9 today. Verses 35 through 38, if you're new to reading the Bible, the larger numbers you'll find there in Matthew are chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are verses. At this juncture, here at the end of chapter 9, Jesus is preparing to send his disciples out. And the pattern and precedent he sets for them is noteworthy. So we'll note certain truths about his character that are reaffirmed here. And from this particular text, we'll see a call to fervently pray and to faithfully labor for Christ's sake while entrusting any results to him. Fervently pray and faithfully labor for Christ's sake while we entrust results to God. So read along with me as I read our passage out loud, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We note here in this particular text three aspects of Jesus' character. We might put them under three different headings. First, in verse 36, we see the command of Jesus. The command of Jesus or the authority of Jesus in his teaching and in his healing. Second, in addition to the command of Jesus, we see the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus for those most marginalized. And third, we find the call of Jesus, the call of Jesus to fervently pray and to faithfully labor, the command, the compassion, and the call of Jesus. We see in verse 35 a concluding bit for the previous sections we've gone through already. Matthew here provides a summary or a summation of Jesus' earthly ministry. And to this point, while we've seen sweeping descriptions, for the most part, we've been privy to individual examples and demonstrations of Jesus' power throughout the book, demonstrations of his power, his authority, and his compassion. Here, 
Matthew is indicating to us that we've barely even scratched the surface of all that Jesus is up to in the region of Galilee. Jesus, he says, went through all the cities and villages, teaching and his healing, sort of this cover-all statement that we're met with. And so we note the breadth of Jesus' ministry. He's teaching in primary locales. He's taking the main stage in the towns that he enters into, teaching the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom from the synagogues in each city. While we focused on individual examples and stories prior to, now we're given this sort of blanket statement. He's in every town, and he's healing every disease. Now, Matthew likely isn't saying that every disease present is what Jesus healed or that he went into literally every town, saying he covered the whole region and every disease and affliction that was presented to him, he then healed. What we can be sure of from these accounts is that beyond the, beyond the miraculous accounts that we're provided with through individual stories, there are countless more that we're not privy to at all. The scope of Jesus' ministry then reflects the breadth of the authority that he claims to possess. If Jesus has a little authority, then perhaps he does a little healing. But if Jesus has all authority, then his healing and his teaching ministry is presented on a massive scale such as this. In addition, Jesus' ministry is two-pronged. There's two elements to it. He's teaching and he's healing. As we've noted throughout, that Jesus' healing ministry is not an end to itself. He's not healing for healing's sake. And it's coupled explicitly here with gospel teaching. We see good works paired with the good news. And we're reminded here that our good works are founded and grounded in our proclamations of the gospel. Jesus' ministry then is having both physical ramifications and it's effectively shaping the spiritual climate of the region that he's in. And it's this reality that serves as a springboard for the disciples and our foregoing ministry. For several chapters now in the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen the crowds. We've seen the crowds follow Jesus up the hillside. We've seen the crowds follow Jesus in his healing ministry, hanging on his every word, watching his every move. And they'll continue to do so throughout the rest of the gospel. But here, though the crowds have largely been onlookers to Jesus' ministry, they now emerge as key players. Jesus' attention turns to them. And important for us, he has compassion on them. Verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So here we find the people, the crowds, now gathered without leadership, without guidance, without direction, without hope. They're without protection, and they're subjected to the whims of those who they perceive to have more earthly or spiritual authority. We've seen interactions thus far in the gospel with the scribes and different religious groups who leave the people fraught with uncertainty. This is a people who are harassed and they're helpless. The language here communicates that they're torn, they're beaten down in spirit. Perhaps today, you relate well 
with these descriptors. While scripture also would give you admonitions to glorify God, to find him praiseworthy, to worship him with your entire life in an honest moment, if we sat down and you were across the table from me, you would say, Mike, I find all of that compelling and interesting, but the identifiers and descriptors I find most relatable in scripture are these, harassed, helpless, without direction, lost, I feel hopeless, When scripture speaks of those down and out, something resonates with your spirit, perhaps. Through life's trials and perhaps on account of indwelling sin, harassed and helpless sounds about right to you. We want to grant that reality this morning of all the passages found in the Bible in a weird sort of plot twist for you. In an honest moment, you would say that you've found these particular descriptors to be the most relevant parts of the Bible to you. I want to acknowledge that today, friend, and say you can take heart. For we see again, not just the harassed and helpless, but Jesus' response to them. We see again the counterintuitive qualifications for warranting Jesus' gaze, for being in the path of his kindness, for standing in the way of his compassion. The language in the text here adds a bit of inflection to Jesus' response, and we learn that Jesus not only has compassion for the harassed and helpless, he has deep-set, gut-level compassion for the harassed, the helpless, the hopeless. For those who in a moment of honesty and authenticity and transparency under conviction have learned what it means not to despise their neediness. Friend, today, don't despise your neediness. Confess it. Confess it to Christ. I'm reminded of the old hymn with the simple lines, I need you, Jesus. I need you every hour. I need you. Perhaps culturally conditioned to confess need in that sense, to confess weakness is something unbecoming of a human being who has dignity and worth. And yet we find that Jesus' gaze, that his compassion in the moment of weakness, in the moment of confessing neediness, cuts through all the loud noise. Confess your neediness to Christ. Reckon with your sin by doing with it the only thing that at the end of the day we can do. Bring it to Jesus and see it at the cross authoritatively and sufficiently dealt with. Jesus has come for these type of people, for you and for me. He's come as an able shepherd to tend to and guide sheep unable to find their way. So then there is a question for us reverberating through the simple lines of Matthew at the end of chapter 9 here. And the question is this, will you today receive his care? Will you today receive Jesus' care? For believers in the room, we find in Jesus our great example, our great exemplar. As he gives attention and shows compassion to those weak and helpless among us, we too demonstrate care for those who are down and out. Those most looked over, we look at. Compassion ought not be foreign to our Christian living. 
Proclaiming the gospel is quite becoming of those who claim to trust in Christ. So in helping the physical needs of others, we provide aid for weak bodies. And through our sharing the gospel, we, pro- we provide spiritual nourishment for anemic souls. In imaging forth Christ's compassion to those around us, we strengthen both hands and hearts, awaiting eagerly the day when the fullness of our adoption is given us, and we see him face to face. As believers, we see in Jesus a fitting and the best example for our demonstration of compassion to everyone around us. And yet, we do so knowing, remembering, gaining peace from, and being compelled by the reality that we're, though we're now adopted as sons and daughters of God, we once stood amid these crowds ourselves. That we too have been and are the objects of Jesus' compassion. That we have been or have received rescue. So while Jesus is not less than our foregoing example in demonstrating compassion, he is much more. And Jesus is our death-defying, our sin-crushing Savior. And here we find it's in remembrance of this kind of rescue. Consideration of Jesus' command and authority and consideration of his compassion that we are now compelled to act. The command and compassion of Jesus pave the way for his call on our lives. Read with me verses 37 through 38. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Employing now this sort of agrarian metaphor, Jesus now turns to his disciples and he commissions them into a significant role, a significant part in this unfolding story. We gather from the text that the harvest Jesus describes here is a spiritual harvest, a crop of people who, on account of Jesus' earthly ministry and teaching, are now ready to embrace his message. For some time, Jesus has gone throughout the region, healing, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that he himself has come to deliver people from their sins. And now, as many stand on the precipice, ready to respond to Jesus, he senses an opportunity, and hear this, for his followers to be involved. Jesus' decision here to call the disciples into this significant, this important work is not predicated upon any shortcoming in his own ability or some insufficiency in his character to do the work. Rather, Jesus is offering up for his disciples, his followers, an opportunity to fold their lives and their ministries into his own. Though Jesus, through Jesus' invitation, the disciples are given here, and this is important for us, they're given here an opportunity to make their lives count for what matters most. They're given an opportunity to make their lives count for what matters most. And note here, too, the content of Jesus' call. There's a harvest ready to be reaped, people ready to respond, and not enough laborers or workers to go and gather it in. Many people want to respond to the gospel, but there are too few people to go out and engage in the particulars of coming to faith and discipleship. 
Yet we know from the outset that Jesus' call is not expressly to go and do the work of evangelism and discipleship, is it? Those, those are parts of the broader call for sure, but we see here something different. The work Jesus first calls the disciples to feels slow. It feels a lot more like plotting. It feels a lot like trusting. He calls them to work in a different way from the outset. He commands his disciples to pray. If we're tracking the narrative at this point, we've seen Jesus do a lot of things, a lot of incredible things. Perhaps partially culturally conditioned, we expect the story at some point to crescendo. We expect here more drama, more action, perhaps a more aggressive form of reaping in a harvest. And yet, Jesus' command is to pray earnestly. Why is that? Well, there are at least a few reasons and probably many more. But the first, we see this in the text, that the harvest itself belongs to Jesus. That he himself is the Lord of the harvest. The growing number of those who will now follow Jesus hereafter will not be notches on the belts of his disciples. More victories for them to claim. Rather, their testimonies to the veracity of Jesus' claims and the liberating truth of the gospel. We remember this too in our own opportunities to share our faith with others. That ultimately in our fervent praying and our faithful laboring, that we entrust any results therein completely to God. While we're burdened to go to the lost and to have compassion for those around us, we are completely unburdened by the fact that Jesus will take care of the results. We can trust him. We can trust the Lord's sovereign hand. Secondly, we see that time and earnest prayer positions the disciples and our hearts and minds such that we are completely dependent on Jesus. This isn't some sort of white-knuckle effort to persuade or convince, entice, or otherwise influence the masses to come to Jesus. This is the disciples entering into a work that's already in progress. So we move throughout our lives walking in faithful obedience to Christ, fully dependent on him and trusting that he'll act. Third, we find that those who labor for Christ's sake are indeed sent by Christ. And it's to that end that Jesus commands the disciples to pray. As the disciples are here called by Jesus to pray, so the workers who reap the Lord's harvest must be sent by Christ to accomplish the task. They are called by God to the work at hand. And what we'll find in the book of Matthew is that this is all hurtling towards a proper end. That the disciples of Jesus will indeed effectively be called the world over to this sort of work. As the disciples are called to pray and some are sent to sent, or some are called to be sent, so are we. In recent years, I've had the opportunity to be a part of a few church history study tours. Sound exciting? I saw the level and the temperature in the room go up. So I've gone on a couple of church history study tours throughout the New England region. Went to seminary out in the Midwest, and we would bring groups of students, undergrad and graduate students, and we would pile into passenger vans and tour bus, and we would go throughout the six New England states over the course of 10 days. It was a bit of a romp, but it was fun. And we would visit 
Different sites throughout all six states, different monuments, markers, tell the stories of our nation's rich religious history. And I was always reminded in those moments that those, though these events and these places and, and the stories that we were telling, though they held sort of seminal power and sense in, in our lives and we made much of them, that our society and those who I live among uh, every day really don't care. I remember being in Northampton, Massachusetts, and going around the street from the church where Jonathan Edwards preached and labored in ministry for years and years during, amid the first great revival. And I walked into a neighboring church, and there on the wall was a, a, a huge painting of Edwards. And I was like, well, that's pretty neat. There, there's a painting here. And I talked to some of the people who were in the church that day, some of the staff members, and said, hey, I just, I just have a question for you. Do you, have, do you actually know who that guy is? Do you have any idea? And they were like, absolutely not. And I thought in that moment, not that it's indicative of some bigger, grander whole, but I just remembered there are evidences of, vestiges of what we might call harvest seasons all around us. And yet, in our time, we ask the question, don't we? Is the harvest plentiful? like Jesus says it was. Do we have a plentiful harvest? As Jesus gives this command, it becomes quite evident and clear to us. In his day, after his or during his earthly ministry, there's certainly a harvest. Many standing on the precipice, ready to give their lives to Jesus. Many ready to follow him. And yet, what's borne out through history and by our own experience, we might look around us and say, I don't see the harvest here. And so we're left to ask the question because history and experience remind us that every season may not be a harvest season. What are we left to do? To our great benefit, Scripture accounts for this reality, this idea that not every season is a harvest season. And obedience for us in that moment looks largely the same. We're reminded by the Apostle Paul's reflection in 1 Corinthians 3 that as believers across time and space, we will assume different roles and responsibilities in responding to the call of Christ on our lives, that we'll play different parts in this grand rescue effort. Though some in that narrative that Paul teaches wish to give credit to Paul or Apollos for the amazing work happening in their midst, Paul reminds them there that their work was actually that of servants assigned by God to the particular task. Paul writes in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then, harvest or not, some of us will be busy about the work of planting, sowing gospel seeds that may sprout one day out from under our purview, perhaps long after we're dead and gone. Others will come along to nurture those seeds in people's lives, helping them along through the work of discipleship and further evangelism, answering questions and caring for them in particularly helpful ways. And yet, we know that in our planting, in our watering, that God will ultimately bring the increase, that he'll give the growth, that truly he is Lord of the harvest. So the call for us then, and hear this, is not to calculate the dimensions of our faithfulness, 
relative to the size of a perceived harvest. It's to fervently pray and to faithfully labor, even as we entrust God with the results. The body of Christ is this beautiful admixture of those fulfilling different roles and responsibilities in the kingdom-minded task. I'm reminded of the great English missionary, William Carey, who labored for several decades as the first English international missionary in Calcutta and Serampore. Reflecting on Carey's posture toward his missionary task in India, his friend John Ryland wrote this about him. Our undertaking to India really appeared to me on its commencement to be somewhat like a few men who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating into a deep mine which had never been explored. And we had no one to guide us. And while we were thus deliberating, he says, William Carey said, well, I will go if you will hold the rope. But before he went down, he, as it seemed to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. Globally, the Lord is ever at work. We pray weekly here for unreached and least reached people groups, aware that the Lord may yield a harvest there. So we pray for laborers to go, and some of us go ourselves, sensing a peculiar call ourselves to be busy about the work of gospel proclamation around the world. And two, we're mindful of the fact that over the last half century, the burgeoning and vibrant center of worldwide Christianity is increasingly found in the global south, as opposed to the global north, and that westernized Christianity faces myriad challenges in terms of progress and trajectory. As a church, we involve ourselves in the support of international missions and ministries to this end. They might reap a harvest in the different context where they are. It's our small part, our small way, collectively, of holding the rope. Near to home, we sense the challenges inherent and living out the Christian faith in our current spiritual climate and in our neighborhood contexts. As parents, we understand the great stewardship and opportunity before us in ministering to and discipling our children, particularly amid a culture that seeks to work against our efforts. As co-workers and neighbors and friends, we're met, as C.S. Lewis reminds us, day to day with the stunning reality that we never meet an ordinary person. That there are no mere mortals. That everyone we meet, everyone among whom we live, work, dine, and play, are candidates for God's mercy. As a church, you'll see that we talk about a lot the local work of church planting. We support and give and send people to church plants in our local area to continue doing the work of gospel ministry here around our city in the neighboring communities. Some are going down joining the church plants, linking up with them, while others hold the rope. Personally, perhaps you sense a call to go, and this is not uncommon in personal conversations sitting across the table from some of you. Maybe you feel a call to go to some other part of the country, some other part of the world to faithfully labor, to fervently pray that God would produce a harvest in whatever area he is sending you to. We want to equip you, compel you even, to answer God's call and promise you that we'll hold the rope. For others, maybe the grand, God-ordained, crazy call on your life 
is to stay. Is to stay where you are. To faithfully labor. To fervently pray for a harvest right around you. You're aware in your everyday, in your grocery shopping, in your meal eating, in your walks around the neighborhood that God is up to something. And so in your own way, you've gone down. And your brothers and sisters here at Hope, the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, stand around you and with you as a means of holding the rope for you. The body of Christ then is this beautiful and glorious admixture of those going down and those holding the rope those faithfully laboring and those fervently praying. And this is the ebb and flow, the daily plotting, the ordinary faithfulness to and among those we come into contact with. And all the while, we entrust God with the results, mindful that one day he could yet bring in a harvest right around us once again. This morning, as we consider ways to respond Perhaps you're in the earlier category that I mentioned. Perhaps you feel desperate this morning, harassed, helpless, a bit hopeless. I'd invite you over the next few minutes as we spend time in silence to pray to consider Christ. To consider Christ who has come for those just like you, those just like me. He's come to give rest for the weary And he's come as the solution to our sin sickness. Perhaps others of you are wondering about your slot in the story. In your everyday, going to work, parenting your children, loving your spouse, befriending your neighbors, what does faithfulness to God's call look like for you now? Perhaps you're actively engaged in sharing the gospel with a friend or a loved one. This morning, as we take a few moments to respond, pray for them that in their lives the Lord might reap a harvest, that the Lord might bring them to himself. This morning you could pray for our city, you could pray for your neighborhood, you could pray for those on your street, your actual neighbors, among whom we live, we work, and we play. They would come to know Christ in his fullness, that God would yet reap a harvest there. Pray for laborers this morning in parts of the world where there is a harvest already to be reaped. Let's go now before the Lord in a time of reflection, a time of silence, and pray even as the Spirit guides us.